there's somebody in like, you know, Sydney, Australia right now with a book in their hand is thinking about the world along the same lines of the conversation that we're having. It's literally us manipulating and maneuvering 26 letters into different arrangements that might just liberate somebody. Literacy is, is freedom. And so, so many people was yelling, you know, and it was wild to me. I was like, and this is literature right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I was like, this is the importance of books. You're listening to The Freedom Takes, a podcast from Freedom Reads. I'm your host, Reginald Dwayne Betts. Our guest today is Jasmine Ward. Jasmine is a novelist and associate professor of English at Tulane University. She has an MFA from the University of Michigan. She's the author of the novels Where the Line Bleeds, Salvage the Bones, and Sing Unbury Sing, which we'll discuss today. Of note, Jasmine Ward has won two National Book Awards, one for Salvage the Bone and the latter for Sing Unbury Sing. She's been the editor of the anthology The Fighters Time and the author of the memoir Men We Reaped. As many, many, many awards and praises I would name for Miss Ward, but I want to cite a few that are stellar and important and signals her to be one of the great young writers of this generation. She has received a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. She's received a Stegner Fellowship, a John and Renee Grisham Writers Residency, and a Strauss Living Award. Thank you for being here, Jasmine. Thank you all for having me. We love and our listeners would too. If you read a passage, but first, could you could you set it up for us for those who haven't read it yet? Okay, um, one of the main characters in Sing and Buried Sing is a thirteen year old boy named Jojo. He lives with his grandparents. His grandmother is ill with cancer, and so his grandfather is raising him and his little sister. Right, and back in the forties, his grandfather was sent and enslaved at Parchment Prison, right? And so while his grandfather was in Parchment Prison in the 1940s, he met this kid named Richie, who was, I think, 13, who was also sent to Parchment Prison and, like, re-enslaved in Parchment Prison. So the part that I'm going to read is, you know, Pop, that's his grandfather's name, telling Jojo the story of this kid, Richie, who he met at Parchman. That 12-year-old boy I told you about, Richie, they put him on the long line. From sunup to sundown, we was out there in them fields, hoeing and picking and planting and pulling. A man get to a point like that, he can't think, just feel. Feel like he want to stop moving. Feel his stomach burn and know he want to eat. Feel his head packed full of cotton and know he want to sleep. Feel his throat close and fire run up his arms and legs. His heart beat out his chest and know he want to run. But wasn't no running. We was gunmen under the gun of them damn trusty shooters. That was our whole world, the long line. Men strung out across the fields, the trusty shooters stalking the edge, the driver on his mule, the caller yelling at the sun, throwing his working song out like a fishing net, us caught and struggling. Once, my grandmama told me a story about her great-grandmama. She'd come across the ocean, been kidnapped and sold. Said her great-grandmama told her that in her village, they ate fear. Said it turned the food to sand in their mouth. Said everyone knew about the death march to the coast. That word had come down about the ships, about how they packed men and women into them. 
Some heard it was even worse for those who sailed off, sunk into the far, because that's what it looked like when the ship crossed the horizon, like the ship sailed off and sunk, bit by bit, into the water. Her grandmama said they never went out at night, and even in the day, they stayed in the shadows of their houses. But still, they came for her. Kidnapped her from her home in the middle of the day, Bought her here, and she learned the boats didn't sink to some watery place, sailed by white ghosts. She learned that bad things happened on that ship, all the way until it docked. That her skin grew around the chains, that her mouth shaped to the muzzle. That she was made into an animal under the hot, bright sky. The same sky the rest of her family was under, somewhere far away in another world. I knew what that was, to be made an animal. Until that boy came out on the line, until I found myself thinking again worrying about him, looking out the corner of my eye at him, lagging crooked like an ant that's lost scent. And I'm going to skip forward a little bit and move to a section that is told from Jojo's point of view, the 13-year-old grandson. Pops told me some parts of Richie's story over and over again. I've heard the beginning at least too many times to count. There are parts of the middle about the outlaw hero Kenny Wagner and the evil hog jaw that I've only heard twice. I ain't never heard the end. Sometimes I'd try to write them down, but they was just bad poems limping down the page, training a horse, the next line, cut with the knees. Sometimes I got fed up with Pop. At first he told me the stories while we were awake at night in the living room, but after some months he always seemed to tell me part of his Richie story when we were doing something else eating red beans and rice, picking our teeth with toothpicks on a porch after lunch, sitting in front of the television in the living room, watching westerns in the afternoon, when Pop would interrupt the cowboy on the screen to say this about parchment. It was murder, mass murder. When Pop told me about the small pouch he kept tied to one of his belt loops, it was cold outside, and he was splitting logs for the wood stove that heated the living room. We were out of gas for the weekend. Ma'am had all the covers in the house on her, crocheted blankets and quilts and flat and fitted sheets, and still she moaned, my bones. Her hands tucked up under her neck, wringing one against the other, the skin raspy and chafed white, even though I lotion them every hour. It's so cold. Her teeth rattling like dice in her mouth. Everything got power. Pop hit a log. My great-granddaddy taught me that. The log split. Said their spirit and everything, and the trees and the moon and the sun and the animals. Said the sun is most important, gave it a name, Abba. But you need all of them, all of that spirit and everything to have balance. So the crops will grow, the animals breed and get fat for food. He put another log on a stump, and I breathed into my hands, wishing I had a hat for my ears. Explained it to me like this. If you got too much sun and not enough rain, crops will wither. If you got too much rain, they rot in the ground. He swung again. You need a balance of spirit. A body, he told me, is the same way. The logs fell. Like this. I'm strong. I can split this wood, but maybe if I had some of the boy's strength, a little bit of wild pig's tusk at my side, something to give me a little bit of that animal spirit, then maybe, just maybe, he huffed, I'm better at this. Maybe it come a little easier to me. Maybe I'm stronger. He split another. But never more than I could handle. The boys share so much, and I take so much. No waste. Waste rots. Too much either way breaks the balance. He rested his axe on the ground. Get me another log. I returned from the pile, put the wood on the stump, balanced it just so. Snatched my hand away as Pop brought the axe down, cleaned through the center of it. 
or a woodpecker could share something too, a feather for aim. My fingers stung from the nearness of that blade, how close pop come to my hand. That's what you keep in your pouch, I asked. I noticed his small pouch when I was four or five, and I'd asked him what he kept in it. He had never told me. Pop smiled. Not that, he said, but close. When that next log split, I looked up at Pop and shook, felt that splintering in my baseball knees, my bat spine, my glove of a skull, wondered what power he had running through him, where it come from. And then I'm jumping to the next, like a paragraph ahead, where Pop is telling the story of Richie again. So this is from Pop's voice. Richie wasn't built for work. He wasn't built for nothing, really, on account he was so young. He ain't know how to work a hoe, didn't have enough years in his arms for muscle, or to know how to break the earth good, or to pull with just enough power to clean the bowls from a plant instead of leaving little half tufts of white ripping the cotton in two. He wasn't like you. You already feeling out, getting longer through the shoulders, long in the leg. You built like me, like my papa. Good stop. But whoever his daddy was must have been skinny, weak-muscled, maybe short. He was a bad worker. I tried to help him, tried to break his line when he was hoeing, dig a little deep in his grooves, reach over and clean his plants better when we was harvesting, pull his weeds and mine. And for a while, a few months it worked. I was able to save him, kept him from getting beat. I worked myself so hard I was sleeping before my body even hit my bunk. Sleep on the fall. I kept my eyes on the ground, ignored the sky, all that open space pushing down that made fear gather in my chest, a bloated and croaking toad. But then one Sunday when we was doing laundry, scrubbing our clothes on the washboards with soap that was so weak everything smelled a little less like wet stink but still didn't smell good, Kenny Wagner rode by with the dogs. Kenny was the inmate caretaker for the dogs. He was a legend even then. I knew about Kenny. All of us did. They sang songs about him in the hill country of Tennessee, down through the delta all the way to the coast. He bootlegged and brawled and stole and killed. He had the truest shot I ever saw. Even though he'd already escaped parchment once and one of them break-proof prisons in Tennessee, too, they still put him over the dogs. Even though he put more than one lawman in the dirt. Poor white people all through the South loved him for it. Loved him for spitting in the eye of the law. For blinding it. For being lawless in a lawless South. Which was worse than a frontier. For standing like David in an Old Testament place where, for a century before parchment, law had been meted out like this, Jojo. Eye for an eye. Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I think even the sergeants respected him. Anyway, Kenny and some of the men he'd chosen to help him was on their way to drill the dogs to train the scent. And one of the men that ran with the dogs was dragging. Maybe he was sick. Maybe it had been whipped. I don't know. But the short man fell and his dogs broke loose, ran away from his dusted over face, his receding belly, and ran to me. Hopped around me like big barking rabbits. Let their tongue hang. Kenny, who was a big white man, six foot three, probably damn near 300 pounds, laughed, told a black man on his knees in the clay, nigga, you more trouble than you're worth, and then pointed one of them big sausage fingers at me and said, you look skinny enough. I hung the pants I was wringing on a line on the way over to him, took as much time as I could because he was the type of man who expected me to run, to look at his big healthy whiteness and all. When I came, the dogs came with me, ears flopping, big black eyes rolling, happy as pigs and shit. Can you run, boy? Kenny said. I looked at him. His horse was big and dark brown, but with a red tinge. Looked like you could see the blood boiling just under his coat, a river of blood bound by skin, knit together with muscle and bone. I'd always wanted a horse like that. I stood close enough to Kenny so he knew I'd come, but far enough away he couldn't kick me. Yes, I said. 
Kenny laughed again, but there was a knife underneath because then he turned in blue eyes on me and said, but do you know your place? Shifted his rifle so the muzzle was facing me. Great black cyclops eye. I let him think what he would about my place, but I said, yes, sir, and hated myself a little bit for saying it. One of the dogs licked my hand. They like it, Kenny said, and I need myself another dog, trusty. I didn't say nothing. Animals had always come to me. Mama said one time she left me wrapped in a basket on the chicken stump out in the back when I was a little baby, not more than a month, and stepped inside to get a sharpening stone for her knife. And when she came out, one of the goats was licking my face and my hand like it knew me. So I just looked at the top of Kenny's head, his bushy blonde hair. He looked at my neck and he said, come on, and turned his horse and kicked and took off. Once we tracked a gunman through 10 miles of swamp to an abandoned cabin, and I saw Kenny put a bullet through that running gunman's head at 200 yards. The gunman's skull burst. Kenny had killed him as the sun was going down, so we camped next to a stream. The clouds rolled in and the night was twice black and fog with mosquitoes. We smoked the fire. All the inmates working with Kenny and the dogs leaned into it, everyone but me and Kenny. I muttered myself to help with the bites. The smoke boiled his face, melted it to nothing, but I still felt him watching me in the darkness. Knew it when he stopped his story about how a woman sheriff had caught him in Arkansas, sent him back to parchment this last time, and then said, I could never hurt a woman. They knew that. And then his gaze is on me. I look right back. Everybody got a line, something to break him, he said. I thought about Richie scrawling through the dirt with his hoe. Everybody, Kenny said, and spat chew into the fire. It's wild listening to you read because um, prison doesn't exist in the literary imagination. You know, not in like a, a real robust way and not in a way I think that talks about teenagers. First time I read the book, I was struck by how young Pop was. I guess Pop was 15 and a boy Richie was even younger. And, you know, I went to prison when I was 16 and um, you know, I almost laughed when, uh, when Pop was like, I mean, I was a man of 15. <laughs> Like, no, you weren't, you know? <laughs> and he's talking about this kid that was even younger. And I guess my first question is, is why did you ex choose to explore prison uh, in this way? You know, what's funny is that no, I don't think anyone's ever asked me specifically like that question before. I mean, as far as them being so young, you know, Pop being young and Richie being young um, and being in Parchment, I didn't know that that was that that would be an aspect of the book um, and that that was going to like figure prominently in the book until I started doing research on Parchment Prison. You know, because before, like, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. I've known about Parchment Prison since I was really young. Like the idea of Parchment as this terrible place that you never wanted to end up in, but there was a real danger and like possibility that either you or the people that who you loved could end up there. That was something that I felt and that I knew from when I was eight. Like I remember having nightmares about like the police, like busting up into my grandmother's house and like taking all the men in the family away and taking them to parchment prison when I was really young. But still like, even though I, I knew about Parchment Prison, I knew that it was a real place and I knew that it was that it was somewhere that you never wanted to end up. I didn't know that in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s that 
you know, kids as young as Pop, you know, 15 and kids as young as Richie, 13, were sent there. I just didn't know that was a thing. And then I started doing research on it and I was actually like surprised and shocked to find that out. And and also, I think to learn that kids like Richie, you know, like they were arrested for things like loitering, things like like stealing, yeah. like really small things and then sent to Parchment Prison and re-enslaved. So I was just so, I think, shocked by that fact and that like children, you know, these children were sent there and re-enslaved that I just felt like I had to write about it. And I also wanted to write about it from their perspectives because I wanted them to have the agency that people like them, that children like them had been denied. You know, Parchment looms large in my imagination because I'll tell you I'll tell you a story. So Parchment is in Mississippi and it's, it's historic prison, but it's also the prison where so many folks in the civil rights movement went to. And so my first encounter with Parchment was Martin Luther King Jr. and these folks. Now I get locked up at 16 and and I didn't think it was possible to send juveniles to prison. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the early animosity I carried was feeling like I was a part of this first cohort where, you know, they sending kids to prison. And it's mm-hmm. like the 90s, super predator era. And it's a bunch of youngers around me. But, you know, it took a while for me to realize that it was some dudes that was 30 who had been there since they were 16. And I read a poem by Etheridge Knight about Freckleface Gerald. Mm-hmm. And, and this was the first time that I peeped it. You know, his poem was talking about a 16-year-old kid who went to prison. Mm. And and I just thought, man, this is not a new occurrence. Mm. And so years later, I read Worse Than Slavery about the parchment farm, mm. and I heard these other stories. And so what I felt compelling when you say that you wanted to get these young people agency is because I do think, I think that your decision to do that was probably one of the most compelling things that I read in literature over the past decade because nobody does it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like such an intuitive response, mm-hmm. but most of us live near parchment mm-hmm. and, and we don't do that. Cause also, you know, Jojo factoring so large in the narrative and um, and not not to fact check your book, but Richie was 12. And I, and I remember Richie being 12 because that meant he was younger than Jojo was. And Jojo was trying so hard to be a man. And it was evident that he wasn't like from the first pages Mm-hmm. Which made it even more evident that Richie, as a twelve-year-old, wasn't, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but to transpose these two figures. And so, I guess my question is: How did this imaginative journey touch you as the writer? What did it do to you? When I really like get into the groove of of writing, it feels like. I am sitting there with that character whose perspective I'm writing from, and they are telling me that story. And like an outgrowth, I think, of of like spending so much time with these people that I'm channeling, that I've created. But an outgrowth of that is that like I love my characters and I feel... I feel a certain sense of sympathy for them. And also I feel a certain sense of empathy with what they are going through. I know it's odd because like, yes, I am sinking into that, into that moment with that person in my imagination, but I'm just brushing up against the experience, you know, like I'm. I'm so glad you said that. That is really, I mean, that's like a smart thing Mm -hmm. to say as one, as a writer, Mm -hmm. But two, as a writer that's writing about 
something as like biggest prison. Yeah. But keep going. I, I'm, I, I, I want to hear you say a little bit more about that. I feel like that is a really insightful thing in terms of being a writer that you could concede that you don't know yeah. your whole character. Oh, yeah. You know, like, yeah. yeah. And I, and I also know that like, for as much as I say that I like love them and feel with them and feel for them, like whatever I'm experiencing as I'm writing, you know, the book and living, living with them narratively in that moment, like that doesn't even come close to the, the magnitude of what it really felt like, you know, for kids like Pop and for kids like Richie to live through those moments. Like I'm just doing the best that I can in the writing of the story. Like I said, I'm just brushing up against the lived experience. You know, contemporary writers choose to write about whatever they want to choose to write about. We all have personal decisions and reasons why we go to places. But I was thankful that you went there because in a way um, you gave voice literally to an experience that doesn't often exist on the page. One of the things, though, you said you you love your characters and you have sympathy for them, empathy for them. And, and I felt that, but I also felt something different because, um, yo, this is a hard book. I mean, talk about like bad parents and shit. It's like, yeah. it's like, you know, it's like, this is, this is like, this made me go hug my kid and be like, all right, look, um, let me, let me figure out your name first of all. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wonder, um, I wonder, do you think that, uh, that part of love is being willing to confront all of the mess of it and to think through the mess of it? I mean, I think so. And I think, that that is part of why early on in the rough draft in like the second chapter I was judging Leone as a mom right because I'm a mom you know she's like struggling with addiction she is sometimes like emotionally abusive physically abusive to to her kids neglectful right and so I I found myself just like really judging her for her behavior and oh me too yeah, and just thinking that she was like awful, right? But see, I realized that that was like on my part as a creator that I couldn't do that because because I was judging her that meant that I wasn't fully understanding her. So like I like stepped back in the second chapter and just like stopped writing it and then just sat with her, right? And tried to figure out or tried to figure out what might have been at the heart of that behavior. And so that's how I found my way to like this idea that she's experienced a loss, you know, like a great loss mm -hmm. and she can't, you know, she, she lost her brother and she loved him very much. I mean, I think a lot about what I want to think about Leone and, and having children is, is really hard, but um, mm -hmm. in, in some real subtle way, I think the, the book asks, how do we deal with what haunts us? Mm -hmm. You find Pop haunted by Stag. He's also haunted by, by Parchment. Mm -hmm. And I think he passes that on to Jojo because Jojo obsesses over the stories that Pop tells him about his experience in Parchment. And then you learn about Richie and Richie too is haunted by Parchment. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Leone, Leone is haunted by the death of a brother given and one might say that the death of Given is just operating in the background. And it's not just Leone who's haunted by that, mm -hmm. but also Pop and Mam. But Leone mm -hmm. is the one who is devastated by it. So much so that Given returns to her only when she is at her worst. Yeah. And I guess I wonder, 
how important was it for you, like, to make the reader deal with the fact that some of us live like this? And, mm-hmm. and it may be, like, it's some duty that it should provoke in us, you know? Because, like, if it, if it ends like a Hallmark card, mm-hmm. then I don't know if I'm asking myself about what duty I have, like, like to my cousin, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or, like, to, you know, to some of my folks who struggle in the same way. You know, I was I was like mad at Leone for a long time, and now I'm realizing like she likes some of my fucking peoples, and that's why mm-hmm. I'm mad at her. You know, because because I mm-hmm. also feel helpless. So I wonder, I don't know what motivated you not to tie it up in some neat way that made me be like, yo, all you got to do is be like Leone. She pulled herself up from her bootstrap. <laughs> why don't you? <laughs> I think that the trauma of like losing somebody that really changed her you know and so I think as I wrote you know Ford in the story and spent more time with her character I began to understand more about her and realized that she has this not weakness but just a flaw I guess and and that flaw is that she can't sit with grief she can't sit with pain you know what I believe is that you have to sit with it. You have to sit with the reality of it in order to figure out how to live with it. Right. And so in my life, like that's, that's my understanding of grief that, you know, it never goes away, but you get better at living with the loss and living with the grief and the love that you still feel for these people that you, that you lost. If you just, if you engage with it, you know? And so to me, like that was Leone's flaw. When I got to the end and, you know, and she gets in the car and, you know, and pretends at forgetting and continues to do the same things that she did before. Like for me, part of the reason why that was the case was because, again, like she can't sit with the trauma of what she of what she has experienced. And because she can't do that, she can't find a healthier way to like live with it. I think we impose a timeline on people becoming. Yeah. And it's and it's really hard, you know, to to admit that the book continues after you stop writing. It's really like it's really yeah. hard to for me to think that that Leone still has possibilities that might not mm-hmm. be contained in this book because the book ends mm-hmm. when it ends. And like mm-hmm. in, in all of them, Jojo, they they all have possibilities. Um mm-hmm. We send books to this prison in Minnesota called Shakopee, and it's a women's mm-hmm. prison in Minnesota. And um, one of them asked, one of the readers inside asked, um, I start laughing when she asked this question, right? But I'm going to ask it anyway, because uh, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. She said, uh, have you had any paranormal experiences or how was it that you decided to use spirits to tell your story? Yeah. As far as I know, I have never seen a ghost. I mean, I see, you know, my people, my ghosts in my dreams, but I come from the type of family like I remember one of the first stories that I ever that I ever recall one of my great grandmothers. I don't even think that she was telling me this story. I think that I was in the room and she was telling my mom the story. And and like all kids do, I was just listening. Right. And so I remember my great grandmother telling this story to my mom about how after her husband, my great-grandfather died, he came back and he visited her. And I remember her saying, like, he said there was something important that he had to tell me. 
but I can't recall the, what the important thing was that he had come back to tell her. And, you know, now my great, great grandmother, she's been gone for, for like 20 something years at this point. So, I mean, I grew up hearing stories like that from like older people in my family. And so I think, I don't know, that maybe that influenced my ideas about the fact that, you know, that I think there's more to the world than what we see and, you know, what can be explained, I think. I often dream like about prison and, and I often mm-hmm. find ways for it to follow me um, in this life or my own writing. But I wrote this line. I'm going to tell you the story. Shit is crazy. I don't even think it's true, but I know it's true. So I, I'm, I turned my book into a solo show. And at mm-hmm. the time I was trying my homeboy Fats, I was helping his lawyer. I got him a lawyer and then I was helping to get him a pardon. Mm-hmm. And I was telling part of the story in the show about him being locked up and, and trying mm-hmm. to get him out. And I and I um, had this line from a poem in it that says, them fools say you can be anything when it's over. Told them straight up, ain't nothing to resurrect after prison. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in this chair and I'm working with my director and I read that line and I stop. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can't say that. Mm-hmm. I was like, that was like my man's still locked up and saying that shit makes it feel like I think he ain't going to get out. Right. Yeah. So I cut it in a moment. I swear I get a phone call three hours later. Hmm. A member of the parole board tells me I got good news for you. Your friend Roger coming home. I mean, no way for me to believe that it's true, you know, and, mm-hmm. but he, but he gets a part and then he comes home. And so yeah. I do think that, Either we're communicating with ourselves or the world is communicating with us in ways mm-hmm. that 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 like exceed mm-hmm. the the normal medium of communication. Cause I'll never forget that moment. And I have at least one witness. But I, I, I we got another question from somebody on the inside. She says she's thinking about the way that addiction makes you a stranger to what you love most. Hmm. And how you get at that really well in your representation of Leone. Mm-hmm. How she has the tendency to abandon her kids mm-hmm. and and really to to just like feel alienated from them as if it's just this cycle of abandonment, then a sense of alienation. And so what mm-hmm. she wants to know is um what did you want us to grapple with as we grapple with Leone's story? Mm-hmm. With specifically with her story of addiction, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there was like a specific message that I wanted a reader to to take away about addiction. I think that what was really important to me when I was writing Leone and like amplifying her voice and inhabiting her voice was to, was I just, I just wanted the reader to feel for her, you know, and to feel with her. In part, I think, you know, because something that I find myself doing in all my books is like writing about the kind of people who have been silenced, who have been unrepresented in literature, in popular culture, right? Or if they are present in literature and in popular culture, have been talked about and haven't been given the opportunity to speak for themselves um, and haven't been granted like dimension in life and complication, right? We want messages. I think the reason why we want messages is sometimes without the message, we have to figure out what all of it means. 
especially if we've never seen it before. I want to read you this one passage. I want to return to Richie for a second, and then I just got a couple more questions. So Richie says, uh, I didn't understand time when I was young. How could I know that after I died, parchment would pull me to it, refuse to let me go? How could I conceive that parchment was past, present, and future all at once? That the history and sentiment that carved the place out of the wilderness would show me that time is a vast ocean and that everything is happening at once. You know, the whole book plays around with the concept of time mm-hmm. and, and really, try. I think, explores the ways that these moments don't let you go. And that's mm-hmm. the same thing with Michael and his father mm-hmm. and his mother. And it's the same thing. I mean, the only one who doesn't seem to be tucked and pulled that way is man. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wonder, I guess I'm asking how cognizant are you of, of some of these structural things that happen in a novel? I thought a lot about structure and I think, I don't, I don't know if this answers your question or, or or not, but when I was writing the book, that one thing that I was like learning in my own life that I think found its way into the book was, was about how there are several moments in my life where I feel like I am simultaneously there at that moment at the same moment that I am here with you having this conversation, you know, like pivotal, I guess, important, maybe sometimes traumatic moments in my life. Part of me is always in that moment. So I think that because I was thinking about that at the time, like when I was writing Sing Unburied Sing, that like my obsession with that idea, I think carried its way into the story and made its way into these characters' realities, right? Like at the same time that Pop is at home, you know, with Ma'am and JoJo telling the story, another part of him is always, you know, like in those fields with Richie. But another part of him is, you know, with those dogs tracking Richie. Another part is sitting on the, you know, on the couch with Jojo telling him a story. Another part is sitting out on the porch with him pointing out constellations, right? Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I feel like the way that we experience time, it's not, it's not linear, you know? And and also because I'm writing about Parchment Prison, because I'm writing about the history of Parchment Prison and Parchment Prison in the past and Parchment Prison in the present, like, I think when I was writing Sing and Buried Sing, I was also becoming very aware of how history lives in the present and thinking a lot about like systemic racism and generational trauma. And so I think too, that because I was thinking about those things that that I think informed my ideas about time and the characters ideas about, about time in the, in the book. It's always a book though. We always have a book that won't let us go. You know, Mm -hmm. when somebody asks us about a book, we found a way to talk about this one book because, you know, we wanted to talk about it anyway. And I, I wonder, what book is that for you? And how do you talk about that book that you love? Hmm. I think it's hard to choose just one, you know, like I think. Like the last book that really, I think, broke me down and then built me back up and like resurrected me in a way was Kiese's was heavy. Mm, Like I remember 
reading the reading the God, the first like 30, 40 pages and just crying the whole time. So you got to understand how I felt when we doing a reading together. And mm-hmm. I, I had some shit, but it wasn't like, you know, I was working on felon. He was working on heavy. Mm-hmm. And um, and he messed around and read before me. I was so, <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, we're going to have to do this again. And you know, yeah, yeah. he's like, you know, you already know you want a rematch. The fight ain't even yeah. I'm like, yo, we got to do a rematch. Because I'm fucked up emotionally. Yeah. And I'm looking. And then and then I got to stand in front of these people who yeah. who literally like, yo, I need a minute. Yeah. Like, are you really about to read some poems? Like, no, nah, yeah. just back up. Just give me some space. I think, um, yeah, I think, I think heavy, I think you're right. I think heavy is one of those books that uh that'll be here for a while because I think mm-hmm. it has all those things that we want great literature to do. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. All right, we got we we always end with one question. Uh okay. So it's is we ask all our all our guests this question. Mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass said that. When we read, we become forever free. How do you think about the relationship between reading and freedom? One of the most important things that reading does is it it takes you out of your own experience and your own life and into someone else's experience and into someone else's life. I feel like there's freedom in that, right? Being in someone else's experience sort of like freed from yourself allows you and enables you to like understand your own experience differently um, and come to, I don't know, like a different understanding about your own life and who you are as a person and what you've experienced. And so there's freedom in that too, right? Because, you know, reading can then like free you of like some preconceived notions that you might have had about your own life or, you know, previous understandings that you had about your own life. It can create new understandings. So I don't know. Like, I think, I think that, that that's a true statement because reading can function like that. Well, it's been a pleasure reading your work. I think, um, but it's also for me been, been, been a real treat to be able to share your work with others. I think, um, getting these letters where people ask us questions to ask you and just when people just say, thank you for the book has been um, just an awesome treat. I know you're extremely busy. Uh, so I thank you for taking the time. You know, this is truly for folks on the inside. So we greatly appreciate it. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for the freedom takes a new podcast from freedom reads. We'll be back next time with another contemporary writer. You can find out more about Freedom Reads and subscribe to our newsletter at freedomreads.org. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-M-R-E-A-D-S dot O-R-G. Our initiative was made possible by a generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This podcast was produced by Aaron Slomsky-Pritz with production assistance by Emily Varga, Elsa Hardy, Tess Wilwright, and Molly Anger. Theme music by Reed Turchin.